Chapter 4. Worthy versus Unworthy Purpose Up to now, I've looked at clarifying all the different definitions of being purpose-driven, trends and barriers, the nuances of demonstrating purpose, but there is one additional assumption that I wanted to challenge throughout my interviews. Is being purpose-driven inherently a good thing? Is all purpose created equal? And now the reason I went down this particular line of thinking is because, well, we know that there are some purposes that can be seen as sexy or marketable because they can present imagery and stories that tug at heartstrings and emotions. But equally, there is important work done by other purpose-driven organizations that can struggle to get meaningful traction because their impact is just less visible. And so in this way, it's not unlike talking about invisible versus visible illness. With visible illnesses, you know, uh, physical deformities or injuries or, you know, um, visible disabilities tend to always attract a bit more sympathy and support just because it's easier to see versus illnesses where, which is purely internal, you know, that, that you can't see them. And so in keeping with the theme of this entire research series in which we're exploring nuance and texture, in this chapter, I want to play devil's advocate on the notion of being purpose-driven, especially because the more purpose-driven businesses we might start to see, the more important it's gonna be to be aware of the spectrum of the different businesses driving purpose in different ways. And given this chapter is about going against the grain, I'll also include a few other perspectives from respondents that didn't really fit anywhere else in my research, but I thought they were just really intriguing and worthy of future investigation. So I, I won't have answers for them, but I think they were great food for thought. To get the ball rolling on the question of worthy versus unworthy purpose, I asked my interviewees the following question. Imagine a hypothetical founder who is just an incredible cybersecurity expert, but is also incredibly passionate about animal cruelty. But instead of starting a shelter, they decide to start a cybersecurity firm that generates the profits, right? And most of this is directed to various animal cruelty causes. So basically they're saying, instead of uh, going off and starting a shelter that they have no experience or skills in, they could start something that they have um, a high degree of skill in and that is sought after. And then from there, their approach to profit generation is a little bit different. And they can say, well, instead of me making all the money, I want to direct it to an animal cruelty cause. So the question is, is this a purpose-driven business? The responses were split almost equally, but half agreed this was a purpose-driven business, an equal number disagreed, and there was a small handful of people who were unsure where they landed. The people who agreed thought that this was a great example of a clever business model that basically redistributed profits towards an area of support and need, a bit like a corporate Robin Hood. They also thought that it should be commended that the founder leverage their expertise on something they're good at in order to redirect funds to experts in the field of animal cruelty prevention, which reminds me of some of the principles of effective altruism, which essentially in a nutshell talks about this idea of thinking about how you can be most effective in your altruism. And it's not necessarily just time, that it can be money, but done in a slightly different way. One respondent thought that it was 
actually overall more effective as a strategy for creating impact, especially if the founder just doesn't have a strong skill set in animal cruelty prevention. So rather than doing something inefficiently, even if it is in line with their passions, the founder's overall impact, like their, their, their pie of impact, you know, can be significantly higher if they focus on leveraging the skills to the absolute maximum. So this ties into a bit of the effective altruism. The, the overall effect that they can create can be stronger if they actually focus on an area they're good at and then generate a bigger, uh, I guess, area of contribution towards animal cruelty versus if they had started up a shelter and they didn't have the experience, they might end up wait, or just wasting a lot of time, not being as effective as existing experts. This line of thinking is quite similar to the issues also behind volunteer tourism, where people, often from wealthier countries, travel to developing nations explicitly to volunteer their time for a short period. So these are people who might go to a, a country in Africa and say, hey, I'm going to um, help build a school for two weeks. Right? Whilst the tourists get to feel good, there's, there is evidence that they could actually be creating, they, they could create more impact simply by donating money and then letting the experts manage the impact, right? Because what ends up happening is that the charities who are looking after, say, building the schools have to put, a, put aside quite a fair bit of time to train the tourists up in what they need to do to have any sort of impact. And so the time lost there to help look after the tourists overall is a net negative for the impact. And hence the idea that if, they actually, if the tourists actually wanted to do something good, they should have just given their money, the, the money they spent on the trip, to the charity and they could have done much more with that money. Now, among the interviewees who agreed that this cybersecurity firm is a profit-driven business, there were a few provisions. Firstly, to demonstrate integrity, this founder would basically need to continue to commit to this profit redistribution, even if there was no marketing around it. Again, just this idea of what would you do if no one was looking? Now, that's not to say that this, this business, this, this cybersecurity firm couldn't market what they do because another provision was the, there should be a bit of transparency around where the profits go and why. So there's nothing wrong with this firm saying to all of their clients, hey, look, we, we're going to give you top-notch cybersecurity um, business and service, but X amount of your money will actually go towards these animal cruelty causes. And if anyone were to ever look into their books, they should be able to see how that money was redistributed. And then finally, everyone who works for the business should somehow share a bit of alignment with that purpose. So what they were talking about here is that there could be a risk that the founder is passionate about animal cruelty. And so they're the ones that commit to this profit redistribution. But if the founder goes, then does that firm, does this cybersecurity firm continue to redistribute profit in the, in the same vision that the founder had? And so it was important then for this firm to continue to be purpose-driven that everyone who works for the business has to share some sort of alignment with the original purpose of the business. So moving on to people who disagreed with uh, the notion that this cybersecurity firm is a purpose-driven business. Basically, they felt that the area of purpose did not have sufficient proximity to the service itself, 
meaning that the, this purpose of preventing animal cruelty may not be sufficient drive for the business to deliver high quality cybersecurity for their clients. So in this situation, what they're saying is that the business would still be fundamentally driven by profits, except that the founder has chosen to donate their money elsewhere. And so what has been sort of described here is a sense of in order for the business to be really passionate about, say, delivering a high quality cybersecurity result for their clients and for the clients to feel like they're getting that that quality of service, would this cybersecurity firm be motivated enough by animal cruelty that they would go and continue to deliver high quality cybersecurity solutions? So that's the nuance they're articulating. Some interviewees felt that the distance between the founder's purpose and the service provided was a bit too much that any communication of the purpose could be seen as a publicity stunt. So again, if you imagine that you are the client of this um, cybersecurity firm and they say, hey, we're going to deliver amazing cybersecurity solutions. And by the way, we also support animal cruelty. How does that make you feel? Because it might it might feel like, well, hang on, those two things don't feel connected. So is this just a bit of publicity or is it something that you're really passionate about? And that's, again, not to say that those two things can't be true, but it's the perception of it. Several other interviewees also pointed out that this structure is actually not dissimilar to corporate social responsibility, again, because of that disconnection between, or, the, or rather the distance between the purpose and the service provided. Using the Gates Foundation as an example here, Microsoft isn't really driven by the purpose of the foundation. Microsoft is still driven by providing great technology platforms and user experiences to customers in order to generate profit. And then with Gates off to the side, getting receiving some of that profit, he then can go off and, or the, the foundation can go off and do good in other areas of the world. Now, none of these objections from the interviewees around uh, this cybersecurity firm is to say that they didn't approve of what this hypothetical business was doing. They simply wouldn't define it as a purpose-driven business. They would rather say that this is just a great business that is also choosing to do good at the same time. Irrespective of where people stood on their views of this hypothetical cybersecurity firm, I really felt that this was an interesting example to work through. Because for me, it raises this question of whether some businesses or industries could be seen as having purposes that were less worthy, or that they don't necessarily deserve to create the same type of social impact. So using the so the reason I picked the cybersecurity firm because this is a high tech industry. And I was curious that if people felt that this type of business couldn't create certain types of social impact, then does that mean that they just don't get to create that? To, to create social impact at all. To give a different example, uh, mining businesses are frequently in the crosshairs as businesses that are seen to have a negative impact on the planet. Now, BHP Billiton, an Australian mining company, has this as their purpose. Our purpose is to bring people and resources together to build a better world. And one potential demonstration of this dates back to 1998, 
in which BHP set up a mining operation in Mozambique. Understanding that there were major malaria plagues in the region, it provided its staff with free mosquito nets, medicine and insecticide spray. However, within the first two years of their operation, there were still something like 6,000 cases per year amongst the people who worked there, and 13 deaths. And so not satisfied with these numbers, BHP joined and part-funded the Lubombo Spatial Development Initiative alongside the South Africa, as in the country, Mozambique and Swaziland. Over the course of three years, they reduced the rate of children carrying the malaria parasite by 76% and they almost eradicated malaria in other parts of South Africa. Now, on the one hand, you can argue that they were doing this philanthropic work selfishly because fewer sick workers meant higher productivity in the mines. But on the other hand, the initiative really has appeared to save lives well beyond the people who worked just in the mines. And this helped contribute to the health and well-being of families in those countries and, of course, providing gainful employment. So, again, this is just an interesting example where there is a mining business who reached out into a different area of support and initiative and they were able to do something that's really good, that supported the community. And at the same time, it did have a benefit for them too. But the, the, the correlation is not necessarily super strong if you just looked at it on the surface. Another example of a business model that's actually not unlike this hypothetical cybersecurity firm. One of the largest private charity donors I, I found in my research from uh, uh, from Europe is technically in the gambling industry. Postcode Lottery is an operation set up specifically to leverage the lottery system as a way of generating revenue from which 32% of all money is committed to various charities around the world. So basically, Postcode Lottery works like this. Wherever you live, your postcode, that's your lottery. And so if you chuck in, let's say, 10 pounds a week or whatever that might be, or 10 euros a week, then you go into the draw for um, some big um, prizes and often it is a big jackpot of some sort. But basically from that money, 32% goes to charities. Since their inception in 1989, the organizers claim to have raised over $8.6 billion dollars for charities. So that's a span of about 30 years. They've raised $8.6 billion for charities. So to be clear, uh, these case studies I'm citing, they're not really endorsements in any particular area, um, but they do demonstrate the grayness that can exist in the term, in terms of being purpose-driven as a business. At this point, I am reminded of the subset of interviewees in chapter one who responded to the question, what does purpose driven mean to you? With, it depends on what values you bring to the table. Whether our hypothetical cybersecurity firm is purpose driven or not, really does depend on our personal values, which of course stands to reason. It's, it's in the eyes of the beholder. But what I'm undecided on is whether this means we need clearly stated definitions for what constitutes being purpose-driven or not, especially because our values and lifestyles will change over time. So when I raise some of these um, concerns or some of these sort of thoughts with my respondents, several interesting observations were raised. And some respondents wondered 
whether or not personal habits tend to be so deeply ingrained that it really does take major upheaval to encourage genuine change. So for example, in Australian supermarkets, reusable shopping bags have been available for years, but it wasn't until the direct intervention of supermarkets and the government in the banning of plastic bags in 2018 before people genuinely changed their behaviors. And in this situation, the supermarkets needed to demonstrate courage to stand up against consumer backlash. And just as a amusing side note, the inventor of the plastic bag apparently invented it to reduce paper waste because he always envisaged the plastic bag to be multi-use. And so this is just an example I wanted to share because uh, it, it reinforces the idea that our values and lifestyles can change over time. Like had the supermarkets not made this intervention, then it's entirely likely that quite a lot of people would still continue to just use plastic bags in spite of everything we might know about single-use plastic. So could the pandemic be the major upheaval that encourages people to change consumption behaviours? Well, not necessarily, because as one respondent pointed out, people have actually ended up turning to comfort food and watching reruns of their favourite shows during this pandemic. In other words, whilst we've been talking about how the pandemic might be encouraging people to um, be more conscious and be more purpose-driven, it hasn't necessarily unleashed this groundbreaking swell of creativity and productivity that we thought that it might have done. And all of these observations simply highlight to me the fact that whilst individuals may aim to be better in, you know, in, in our lives, in our habits, in what we do, we can often be inconsistent, contradictory, and successful in striving for our own purposes. Now, given that these same individuals are also employees, leaders, stakeholders and other businesses, investors even, it makes me think about the expectations that we set and hold for each other. At least half of the respondents in my interviews felt that people had become too unforgiving and prone to judgment, both of each other and businesses. There was a tendency towards being critical or willing to take people down instead of lauding success or being constructive in feedback for, for each other or for businesses. Ironically, I think this type of environment only encourages more performative rhetoric from businesses as it signals to them that you know, certain messages, especially moral ones, will be more likely to be supported. So, for example, research shows that each message that has a moral or emotional word in it increases the likelihood that that message will be shared onwards by 20%. In other words, it's less important about the purpose again and more about what you say. And that's what this type of environment may encourage. So, in, in summary, with this entire foray into the cybersecurity firm and worthy, unworthy purpose, I believe that we as a community, as audience members, and as customers and consumers all play a vital role in supporting the broader systemic change towards being purpose-driven. So whilst we do need to be vigilant in keeping organizations and leaders accountable, it's 
just as important for us to be more responsible for our own actions, to be realistic in the expectations we set for ourselves and for other people, and to demonstrate empathy where it is deserved. So finally, I want to move into something that I mentioned right at the start, which is there's a, there's a section uh, in my interviews where uh, people shared really interesting thought bubbles, ideas, perspectives that go a little bit against the status quo, but I, I didn't have the capacity to look into it further, but I wanted to capture it because I thought that they were really interesting for future discussion. And I, just, uh, I just want to list through some of those here. So the first one, is the purpose-driven movement ultimately geared towards the middle class? So those who are more affluent, educated, and are the ones who have the luxury to engage with purpose because they've got that time, they've got the capacity to be able to, for example, buy products that are a bit more that, that have social purpose weaved into them, to be able to support social enterprises who might have a slightly higher price point, for example. The second one, purpose-driven systems are fundamentally collectivist, meaning in order for a system to be truly purpose-driven, it means we need to think about others and the broader group as opposed to individualism. And this particular respondent wondered whether or not this clashes against the broader Western culture that tends towards individualism and exceptionalism. So this is talking about how Generally speaking, there's a focus on saying, you know, as an individual, we, you know, we should be focused on ourselves. We want to, you know, work on our own achievements. But to be purpose-driven, we actually have to think beyond ourselves. What can we sacrifice so that other people can, who, uh, so that other people can benefit from it, especially if they can't support themselves. The third point, as a corollary to the to the previous point I just mentioned. Are there too many people who want to start their own purpose-driven organizations instead of joining forces with existing ones? Because starting a business is difficult enough as it is, let alone competing for a finite pool of attention and resources. And this goes towards a, um, a point I raised in, I think, the previous episode or the episode before that, in which there was a question around whether or not there were too many charities. and. If there are too many charities, then why is that the case? Is it because the people who founded the charities felt that there was a genuine gap in the market? Or, a little bit of devil's advocacy here, did they want to start a charity because they wanted to start their own charity? So that's that was the point and the question that was raised. The fourth observation. Just as startups can pivot in the customer problems they solve, should purpose-driven businesses be allowed to pivot on their purpose. Now, for anyone listening who isn't as up to date with uh, the startup lingo, the idea of pivoting is where a startup might say, well, look, we're gonna solve this particular customer problem. However, halfway through, they find that the evidence isn't supporting what they're trying to achieve, and so they pivot into a different direction. So, just because purpose-driven businesses are trying to also create purpose and impact in one area, should we expect that they have that purpose figured out before they even start? Or should we allow them to also experiment with the impact they're trying to create? And if they find that their work isn't creating the genuine impact, then they should be allowed to pivot to a different area. Rather than, or and, and the contrast to that would be, well, they didn't achieve their purpose, 
they need to be shut down or they don't they're not worthy of becoming a purpose-driven business the fifth observation what can we do to let purpose-driven businesses and social enterprises fail so given that being purpose-driven often means a closer emotional relationship for the people who are involved can that sometimes actually blind the founders or blind the investors into making poor business decisions and what this is really talking about is that purpose can often be associated with a lifelong passion as well and whilst that is good that can also mean that people will continue to work and work on an idea even if it's no longer viable or sustainable or not necessarily making and creating the type of impact in it needs to so should we actually encourage more businesses to say look we tried but this is no longer sustainable and finally similarly for impact investors what can we learn from investing in social enterprises that fail so what are worthwhile risks to take? And this comes from someone who has a deeper experience with impact investing, which is the idea of investing not just for financial returns, but for social returns as well. And similar with the, with the previous point around you know, founders and people who run social enterprises not being, maybe being a bit too committed to their idea, not letting it fail, so too can impact investors be quite risk adverse. If they support an area of impact and they support a purpose-driven business, there can be this perception that that business has to succeed. Whereas perhaps, again, investors should also just let them fail and then learn from the experience too. So I don't have answers for any of these observations yet, but they will be on my list of research and future articles. But also if anyone's listening and has thoughts and opinions they want to share on any of these points I've raised, please feel free to get in touch with me. So in the end, in this chapter, we went deep into the devil's advocacy side of purpose to check our blind spots when it comes to purpose and to just think about the broader spectrum and to go on to the, the opposite side. Now, as we get into the second last chapter, I will start looking towards the future and what it is that we can do to become more purpose-driven.